0: him but it's so beautiful take it to the lord in prayer what a privilege it is to be able to take our wants our needs our sorrows to the lord and to pray to him about these things i wonder sometimes what it would be like if as a church we were marked by this attitude towards prayer not that prayer is a burden not that oh there's another long prayer coming up in the midst of a service but rather what a privilege it is for us to be here gathered together as a body and to take our wants and our needs before the Lord in prayer. With that in mind, join me as we pray and we ask God to bless us, to bless the nations, and to bless his holy name. Father, we recognize that you are all sufficient, that there's nothing that we could possibly want or need as a body, that you could not, that you cannot provide for us, that you haven't already made provision for in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that as a people, you would help us to be marked by boldness. We pray that you would help us to speak speak plain and direct. We pray that when it comes to matters of the gospel, that you would help us to be clear and to be bold. We pray that you would help us to find balance in our boldness, that you would teach us to be loving and wise. But we also pray that you would help us to not fear man, to not fear death, to not fear suffering, but to only fear you as we communicate. Father, we pray for the members of this church who have to work even on the Lord's Day. Father, we lament the fact that we live in a world where Every single person on this planet does not recognize the beauty and the sacred nature of this day, the day that your Son, Jesus Christ, was resurrected from the grave to save all of the peoples of the earth. We lament the fact that some of our brothers and sisters have to be working today rather than here celebrating the gospel with us. We pray that you would strengthen them and encourage them, and that you would bring them back to us on Wednesday so that your word and the fellowship of your saints would build them back up. Father, we pray for the culture of death in which we live. We recognize that human beings ever since the fall have been finding new ways to try to destroy your image. In this country, with a history of racism and race-based slavery, we have tried to do away with your image. By your grace, you brought men and women to champion the truth of your word, to lead us away from that damnable heresy, and to teach us to walk in the paths of justice. We still have far to go, but Father, we cry out to you, and we ask that you would do something even now, even today, about the tremendous injustice in our land in relation to the unborn. Our hearts break, God. To know that just right down the road from this church, there is a building where human beings are being slaughtered all the day long. We recognize that the most innocent, those who should be the most safe are the ones who are dying in our land. We recognize that a battle is is ensuing in our land, and it feels like we're not winning, it feels like we're not gaining any ground, it feels like justice will never prevail, it feels like babies will continue to be killed, and you're never going to step in and intervene and fix this injustice, but Father, we pray that you would help us to believe all things, help us to not lose hope, help us to not grow weary, help us to keep our hand to the plow as we pursue justice for the unborn. We pray that the church would lead the way in our society, in our community, in our culture by being the champions of life in every way, that we would respect the Imago Dei in every man, woman, and child around us. We pray that you would help us to be distinct from the world in the way that we love and treat people. Father, we pray for children. With Down syndrome and we pray for the parents of children with Down syndrome. We recognize that it's such a difficult task to care for children with so many special needs, but you are a big God and you are powerful and you can give us all that we need. We pray that the church would be a church of adoption, that you would help us to be willing to to seek out these children who may need us to save them from abortion, to be willing to adopt, to take them into our homes, to love them in the same way that you have loved us, Father, by bringing us into your heavenly home. Father, we pray for the Christians who are living in heavily persecuted lands all around the world, those who feel the weight and pressure of the gospel heavy on their heads every single day, those who live with constant fear and anxiety, that any moment a man with a gun may kick in their door and take their lives or kidnap their wives and children, we pray that you would strengthen them. Help them to be the witnesses that you would have them to be. For those, perhaps maybe in a moment of weakness, who have turned from you and professed a different faith and a different God, we pray that you might bring them back as you did with the Apostle Peter, that you would not allow them to be sifted, but that you would restore them, no matter the cost. Father, we pray for pastors who are laboring in obscurity all over the world today. We lament the fact that so much about being a pastor involves publicity and branding and book writing, and conference speaking. And so we praise you for the many brothers all over the world who will not be known by anybody other than those saints in their faithful church. We pray that you would guide their words as they speak your truth this morning, and that you would strengthen them for the task that you've called them to, which some days feels impossible. Father, we pray for the people groups of Waziristan, who do not know your son, Jesus Christ. We know that land is a land of terror and war. It's a vicious land, God. And we ask that you would build it up, that you would bring the gospel to that place. We pray that you would raise up missionaries, maybe not even from America. We know that the gospel is infiltrating the Central Asian countries. And we pray that you would raise up missionaries from perhaps neighboring countries, Christians in Pakistan even. Send them to Waziristan, Lord, so that your son can be proclaimed and your elect can be saved. Father, we pray for the American gospel documentary. We thank you so much for Brandon Kimber and the inspiration and the talent that you've given him. We thank you for the favor that you've given him with his boss to allow him to make this project. And we delight to know that, Lord, you are sovereignly using this documentary all over the world to expose the lies of the Word of Faith Prosperity Gospel. We pray, Father, that the Christians in this church, this local church, would be so attuned to the truth of the gospel that they would be able to tell when a false gospel comes calling. We pray that you would help us as a church to protect the truth of the gospel in both word and deed. Father, we thank you for Blaine Sistrunk and his life in this church. We praise you for the joy that he constantly brings us and we delight to see his commitment to this church. We thank you for the example that he's setting for other young men in this way. We also thank you for Allison Miller and for Amber, who have spent so much time painting and working and cleaning in this church. Father, we pray that as they continue to paint and clean and work, that you would remind them that their treasure in heaven is great. And we pray all of this in the matchless name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Thank you, brother. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in front of you, in the back of the pew in front of you. Feel free to take that home if you don't own a Bible. <clears throat> In July of 1505, a young man was walking on the parched road outside of a small town in Germany where he lived. As he looked up, he saw the sky darkening. He saw the clouds gathering. And all of a sudden, while he's walking, the sky opens up and starts pouring water on him. Lightning is crashing. Thunder is rumbling. And at one point, lightning strikes so close to this young man that he is thrown to the ground. And he's terrified and he cries out to God and says God if you will spare me I will dedicate my life to you I will go become a monk that's exactly what happened that young man went to become a monk and we know him today as Martin Luther now Martin Luther despite becoming a monk struggled with God's justice You see, he'd spent his whole young life trying to be as holy as possible, trying to be as righteous as possible, living in this austere, monastic way, and yet he still knew in his own heart that he would stand before God someday and his righteousness, his works, wouldn't be enough to prevent God from seeing his sin. See, he knew God's justice was perfect and he knew that each and every day, he was still sinning in his own heart. So rather than loving God's justice, he started to hate God's justice and to fear it and to murmur against it. And He knew this was wrong, but he couldn't figure out another way to see it. Well, that was until he read in his Bible a particular verse of Scripture that he suddenly saw in a new light. That verse reads like this. The just shall live by faith. You see, when Martin Luther read that verse, and it it hit him what it meant, he later wrote that he felt like he had been reborn. That verse to him opened the doors to heaven because he suddenly understood that it wasn't his works, it wasn't his efforts that earned his righteousness before God. It was just faith, and through faith in Jesus Christ God was counting him righteous despite his struggles with sin. Now, what you might not know, even if you've heard this story before, is that the words that flipped Martin Luther's world upside down were written over 2,000 years before he read them by the prophet Habakkuk. We've been studying through the book of Habakkuk, and up to this point we've seen this dialogue between the prophet and God. It begins with the prophet crying out to God and saying, God, can't you see this injustice in the land of Judah? Won't you do something about this? Aren't you just? And God says, well, actually, I am doing something about it. I'm planning to raise up this wicked and evil nation of Babylon to come and judge Judah. So then Habakkuk says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said come do something just, and now you're causing this greater evil to come destroy the evil that's tormenting me. How is that just? Well, here this morning, as we'll see, God is about to tell Habakkuk that Babylon is just a tool in his hands. And their rise to prominence and power will not last. God's justice will prevail. Let's read the text. Follow along as I read the entire chapter here. Chapter 2 of Habakkuk. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay." Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, "Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the infallible, inspired, holy, and perfectly sufficient word of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of your prophet. We ask that this morning that you would help us to understand these words, help us to see the truth that you are teaching us even this morning, help open our eyes to it and prepare our hearts to receive it. Amen. Let's begin looking at this text in verse 1. Here we see an imagery Habakkuk is using of a sentry, of a guard standing on a watchtower, we read in the first verse, I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower. Now with this imagery in mind, we see Habakkuk looking actively for God to respond to him. He is expecting God to respond to him. And that's why he takes his stand, looking out on the horizon to see where God is going to come from. Now, A point of application that we need to consider from this very text that will come back later at the end of the sermon as well is this. Just like the prophet Habakkuk prays to God and then waits for an answer, we need to do the same thing in our own prayers. We need to affect this attitude of expectant and hopeful looking to God for the answers to our prayers. Consider the prayers that we pray here on Wednesday nights. For the last... I don't even know how many weeks. We have finished our Wednesday night Bible studies in this room by praying together as a congregation. Many of the things that we pray for are things that we can expect to see happen within our lives. We pray for personal holiness. We pray for purity in speech. We pray for a growth in humility and a growth in repentance. These are things that the Lord is pleased to give to His people. And we should be looking at our own hearts and at one another for evidence of God responding to those prayers in our lives. Now, if you haven't done this before, if you haven't actively looked for the evidence of God's grace working in your life or in the lives of your brothers and sisters around you, do that. And then prepare, as Habakkuk does here, to answer God by thanking Him and praising Him for the work that He's doing. Now we see in the second and third verse of this chapter that God is preparing Habakkuk for his response. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets. There's something God is indicating here that gives a certainty to what he's about to share with Habakkuk. I don't know if you've ever said anything important to someone or perhaps to your children and maybe you led with something like, Hey, go get a pen, get ready to write this down. That's what God is saying to his prophet here. And not just a pen, he's telling the prophet, prepare to write it in stone. What God is saying will come to pass. We also see from verse 2 that Habakkuk isn't getting this vision from God for his own personal benefit. God says, write this down so he may run who reads it. God is giving this vision to Habakkuk to share with the people of Judah. This is a warning of coming judgment, that he who reads it may run from Babylon by fleeing the safety of the city. He tells Habakkuk that even if it seems like this prophecy, this vision may delay, just wait for it. Verse 3, he says, It will surely come, it will not delay. I don't know if, as a kid, you ever played on train tracks. I don't know if you had that kind of childhood. I did. Train tracks were that sort of scary, yet sort of dangerous, yet really fun place to play. Our parents would always warn us, don't play there. You will get run over by a train. And as a kid, I always thought, that's ridiculous. Trains are enormous. They're incredibly loud. They blow horns as they come from miles away. We're going to hear the train coming. We'll get out of the way with plenty of time. That is the attitude that God is warning Judah against right here. There is a train coming at incredible speeds from Babylon, and it will come to crush Judah. And if you continue to sit there and tell yourself, oh, we'll have time, we'll hear it coming, you're going to be just like the kids that play on the train tracks. And as sound as that logic seems when you're a kid, there are children that still get run over by trains. That is what God is warning against, is an attitude of complacency. And he is giving this prophecy to Habakkuk to warn his people. Now I think there are three points that we can take from this section of the text and apply to our own lives. Number 1, we need to consider our own marching orders. Number 1, what are our own marching orders? You see, just as Habakkuk has been given a message from God to go warn Judah, we have been given a message from God and specific instructions with what to do with that message. You see, God gave Habakkuk a warning to take to those who would be faithful enough to flee so they wouldn't die. We've been given the gospel. We've been told, take this good news to the nations. Make disciples of the nations and teach them to obey everything that Jesus said taught us that is the marching orders that is the mission of the church now just like habakkuk though all we're doing is taking what we've been given and delivering it to others god didn't tell habakkuk hey craft a message that sounds good to you craft a message you think judah wants to hear and go give it to him he said write down my words and take them to judah Sean has used an analogy or an illustration that I found helpful in the past that we as the church are like the newspaper delivery boy. Our job is to go from door to door and toss newspapers. We're delivering the good news. Our job isn't to go change the headline or to get in there and change some details of the news story and then deliver it. We have a very simple mission and that is to deliver the gospel. Now, the second point of application I see here God tells Habakkuk to make the message plain. Make it plain. Now, making the message plain doesn't mean that we need to soften the sharp edges of the gospel. There are ways that Habakkuk likely could have changed God's vision to make it sound a little better to Judah. That's not what this means. Plain means being simple and honest in our presentation of God's message. When we put this in the context of sharing the gospel, it's easy to go to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He said, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see, some preachers today, knowing how the unbelieving world will hear the gospel, how they'll hear the wisdom of God and see it as foolishness, they try and get around that. They get around it by coding the gospel in something else, worldly wisdom or something appealing to the senses like lights and sounds and excitement. This is the same thing that we do with our pets when they're sick. Have you ever had a dog that had to take a pill? What do you do? Well, you wrap it in cheese or bologna and you give it to the dog and you hope they'll swallow that pill without noticing what they're really getting. That is the opposite of how God is instructing Habakkuk to carry this message. He says, make it plain. Don't hide what you're doing. So when we preach the gospel to others, we need to preach as Paul did, plainly. The third thing I want to take from this section of the text And I want you to consider is that what Habakkuk was being asked to do was very, very likely putting his life in real danger. See, Habakkuk was prophesying under a king that hated God's word. Habakkuk was carrying a message that very easily could have led to him being imprisoned or martyred for what he was communicating. I think we need to be willing in the same way to tell the truth, to proclaim the truth of the gospel to those around us, even if it's going to cost us. And brothers and sisters, we have been promised that it will cost us. Now, you may not be martyred for sharing the gospel with your friends and family, but you may lose friends, and you may lose relationships with family. You may lose reputation and status and opportunity You may even lose your job for being faithful. But like Habakkuk, we need to trust in God's message and trust in the power of that message. So much that we put our fear aside and we faithfully communicate what we've been given. Let's move on to verse 4. In verse 4 here, I want you to see that God is creating a contrast. And it's a contrast between two people. Verse 4 reads, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Now let's focus first here on this person whose soul is puffed up. This language, puffed up, really just means that this person is incredibly proud. This is a proud person. And if we read a little farther it becomes very clear that this person that God is describing is representative of Babylon. So if we read verse 5 here, we see, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. He is, his greed is as wide as shale. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all people. This is clearly describing the greed and the pride of the nation of Babylon. You see, in Babylon's desire for more, their empire, their their power has been extended out to the nations around them, and they are devouring those nations. They are consuming them with an unquenchable appetite for more. Like death itself, they are plundering and taking other people's lives, enslaving them and bringing them back to their city. So, if this is Babylon, if Babylon is being described here in this contrast as puffed up, and that contrast is between this puffed up Babylon and a righteous person, why is this pride the focus of God's attention? To put it another way, if God was going to contrast evil Babylon and righteous people, why wouldn't he just say evil? Why is pride? the sin that he uses to characterize Babylon. I mean, clearly Babylon has many other sins that we could use to describe them. I think there's three reasons that God characterizes Babylon as primarily proud in their sin. The first reason is very simple. It's that God hates pride. Reason number one is that God Hates pride. In last Sunday's text, we saw God speaking of Babylon as this evil power that he was raising up to judge Judah. And he says that of Babylon, they are a law to themselves. He also says that Babylon promotes their own honor. We see Habakkuk say of Babylon that they worship their own military might. These are all descriptions of a proud nation. You see, what pride is, fundamentally, is caring more about your own glory than about God's glory. And that's exactly what we keep hearing Babylon do in God's word this morning. Babylon is self-exalting. They're seeking their own glory above all else. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, says this. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. You see what the Babylonians are doing is they are claiming for themselves a glory and an honor and an exaltation that rightfully only belongs to God. They are robbing God of what He deserves. God, being the perfect, loving being that He is, perfect in every one of His attributes, His goodness, His holiness, His justice, He rightfully deserves all of our glory, all of our honor, and all of our praise. And Babylon's pride is saying, No, we want it for ourselves. This is something, brothers and sisters, that God hates. It's not just Babylon that has pride. We read in Psalm 101 verse 5, Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Proverbs 16.5 says this, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 15.25 says, The Lord tears down the house of the proud maintains the widow's boundaries. God hates pride. Which leads us to the second reason that I think the focus this morning is on Babylon's pride. And that is that pride is a fertile soil for every other kind of sin. Pride is a fertile soil for every other kind of sin. If you make a mistake at work, Maybe an embarrassing mistake. It's pride that tells you just lie. Nobody will notice. Save face. If someone harms your honor or is rude to you publicly, it's pride that says you need to get him back. It's pride that says hold on to that grudge and harbor angry and even violent thoughts. It's pride that says our desires and the satisfaction of those desires are the most important things. And it's pride that twists those desires into things that are unnatural. You see, this is why Habakkuk says of the one who is puffed up it is not upright within him. What he means is the proud person's heart is not right. And if his heart's not right, because his heart is proud, his desires are not right. All of the desires that come from a proud heart are twisted and focused inward on self-glory. This is such an important concept to understand as Christians. Here's why. When I was a very young Christian, the very first church I ever walked into and sat through Bible studies and sermons under... I remember very clearly that this church had abandoned God's word as their standard. I didn't know this at the time, but in abandoning God's word, they had a very unbiblical view of man and pride. I remember the pastor of this church one time sitting down in a a small Bible study with, with me and a couple other men and saying, I just don't believe That the men and women that I've met from other religions, Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, good men and women, men and women who are nice and charitable and so kind, I just don't believe God could send them to hell. You see, this pastor was denying what the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the only way for us to be reconciled to God. I struggled with that. I mean, I was a new Christian. I only knew my Bible well enough to know that what he was saying didn't jive with what I was reading. But I couldn't answer his concern because I felt the same way. I looked around and I saw Hindus and Buddhists and people who claimed no religion who were nicer and kinder and did more charitable deeds in their lives than I ever had. Brothers and sisters, if you look around, you will see people just like that. We rightly recognize the deeds of these people as good, as kind. But here's what we miss. Is that those good deeds are rooted in a heart that is seeking to exalt self. Those good deeds come from wanting to be exalted as a good person. You can do all the good things in the world. You can be the nicest person in the world. And if all of that comes with a desire to exalt yourself as a good person, you are drowning in pride. You are doing exactly what the Babylonians did. You are taking glory that God deserves and you are giving it to yourself. This is why we see people who outwardly look good go to hell. Because in their hearts... They are in rebellion against God this is why Paul in Romans 14 could write everything that does not come from faith is sin along with being a fertile soil for other sins to grow this is why sin is so dangerous and That's the sin of pride is so dangerous and that's the third point here that's why I think point number three Why God here is focusing on Babylon's pride. It's a warning for how dangerous pride is. Jonathan Edwards said this about pride Pride is the worst viper that is in the heart. It is the first sin that ever entered into the universe, and it lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin, and is the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working. Of any lust whatsoever, it is ready to mix with everything. And nothing is so hateful to God and contrary to the spirit of the gospel or of so dangerous consequence. And there is no one sin one sin that does so much let in the devil into the hearts of the saints and exposes them to his delusions. What I like about that quote is it emphasizes the deceptiveness of pride. We see the outward good works, but we don't see the pride that's causing them. Pride can hide in plain sight. Pride may be hiding in your life this very morning. Pride is like that apple that's shiny and red and delicious on the outside, but when you bite into it, you find out that it's rotten in its core. This is what makes pride so dangerous. And this morning's text is a reminder of that danger. Now we've looked at the proud, the puffed up. Let's look at the other side of this contrast, the righteous. The text goes on to say, But the righteous shall live by his faith. Now what this meant to Habakkuk's audience was very clear. Babylon is coming to destroy your city. And if you trust in God and you heed this warning and obey him faithfully, you will live You will have time to leave Judah. You will have time to hide in the hills. You will be spared. But we're not done here. You see, there is a far greater and more glorious meaning to Habakkuk's words in this verse. You see, the New Testament perfectly reveals God's redemptive plan for how He's throughout history worked to save His people building up and building up to the crescendo of the cross, we can see all of that clearly. But when we look back at the Old Testament, it's not always so clear. You can think of God's redemptive plan in the Gospel in the Old Testament like a series of mountains. And this mountain range, imagine taking it and submerging it in water until nothing was left but just the peaks of individual mountains sticking out every few miles in this water. That's what it's like when we read the Old Testament. There's huge spans of the Old Testament where the depths are too deep for us to see Christ perfectly revealed. But occasionally, we see the glory of the gospel poking through the surface of that water. And it is as clear as day. And if you have eyes to see it, it's right there. That's what we see this morning in Habakkuk. It's the glory of the gospel revealed in this verse. We see that we are justified before God by our faith in Jesus Christ what does that mean justified to be justified means that God when he looks at us he declares us righteous he declares us righteous now this is important it doesn't mean that God makes us righteous it means he declares us righteous here's a way of understanding that imagine that you commit a federal crime you break a federal law you get caught you go before a judge you're thrown in jail life sentence but the president sees you and says you know what i'm going to pardon that person so the president gives you a pardon and you're freed that life sentence is done away with When He pardons you, He doesn't actually make it that you never committed the crime. But in the eyes of the law, it is as if you are perfectly innocent. That's a picture of what happens when we are declared righteous. But it's only half the picture. You see, the gospel is better than just being declared innocent. In the gospel, we are declared innocent of the sins that we commit. And we are also declared righteous because we are given the righteousness of Christ. See, this righteousness that is not our own is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the only man who ever did and who ever will perfectly fulfill God's law. You see, He lived a perfect life. And then He suffered and died on the cross for our sins. And as a result of faith in Him, His perfect life is credited to us. It covers us. If our sinful lives are like a a pile of garbage at the side of your road waiting to get taken away, His righteousness is like a fresh snow that covers and blankets that garbage with pure, clean, white glory. And that's what God sees when He looks at you and you are in Christ. Now, we see here in Habakkuk that the instrument, the means that God uses to justify his people is faith. So what is faith? We need to understand what this instrument is if it's so important. Well, I believe there are three essential components of faith. Three essential components. I'm going to give you a brief overview of each of these three. Now, these three components go together. Faith is all three of them. It's not one of them. It's, not, it's like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. If you have peanut butter and you have jelly, but you don't have bread, do you have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? No, thank you. If you have peanut butter and you have bread, but no jelly, likewise, you don't have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You get the idea. Component number one of faith. You have to know the message. You have to know the message. You see, faith is not a feeling. It's not just a feeling. It's not just an experience of emotion. Faith is based on a message and the content of that message. You see, for Habakkuk, he had a message with facts. Babylon is coming. Babylon will destroy Judah. And God is warning you to flee. Those who had faith in God trusted the content of that message. They knew it. For us, our faith is based on the message of the gospel. We know of the life and works of Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture. We know of what He will do when He comes again. That content is key to our faith. The second component of faith. We have to believe the message. We don't just have to know the facts. We have to believe it. We have to believe that it's true. You see, for Habakkuk, I'm sure there were many people who he proclaimed this vision to who listened And they knew what he said. They understood it, but they didn't believe it. They're like the kids playing on the train tracks. I have time. I don't think it's going to happen. It would never happen to us. Just like Habakkuk, we don't need to just know the facts of the gospel. We don't just need head knowledge of the gospel. We need to believe the gospel is true. Not true generally, but true for us individually. This can be hard. This can be very difficult. At times when we are convicted of our sin, our sins can seem so real and so raw and so terrible that we struggle to believe that God could ever actually forgive us. Other times, we may suffer. We may be in pain. And the reality of our present suffering may be so overwhelming and heaven may seem so far away Just wonder if the promises we have in Christ are ever really going to come true so what's the remedy for that how can we believe the message is true when it's hard well the remedy is point three the third component of faith that is that we trust in the message giver we trust in the message giver You see, in the book of James, we read that even the demons believe in God, and they shudder. We don't just need to know facts. We don't just need to believe those facts are real. We need a personal trust in the one who's given us that message. See, we don't believe the gospel because our parents believe the gospel. We don't believe the gospel because our friends do. We don't believe it because we figure that's the safest bet just in case hell happens to be real. No, we believe the gospel because we have confidence in and reliance on the one who is the gospel. We trust in the person of Jesus Christ and he gets us through those times when we struggle to believe. We rely on him. Now within this text, this teaching, that it is our faith that justifies us, we see a central kernel, a nugget of what the gospel is. But one of the great tragedies of Christian history is that this essential truth has so often been lost, forgotten, or swallowed up by false teachings. You see, this teaching that Martin Luther saw in the text of Habakkuk, that the righteous shall live by his faith, was one of the sparks that sort of started the fire of the Protestant Reformation. It is one of the key doctrines that made the Protestant Reformation what it was. And yet over 500 years have passed since then and we're still seeing this doctrine threatened in the world around us. Just like our brother Sean mentioned earlier, I want us to be a people that can sniff out false gospels and false teaching. I don't want us to be deceived by the world when it comes presenting something it calls gospel that's really just a load of garbage so this morning I want you to be prepared to smell out the false gospel of faith plus works the false gospel of faith plus works this is the gospel that says deceptively oh yes faith is important faith is necessary for you to be saved You read a text like Habakkuk and they say, yes and amen, we need faith. Faith is necessary, but it's not enough. That's the key distinction. The false gospel of faith plus works will always say faith is important, but it's never enough to justify you before God. This is the message taught by the Roman church. This is the message taught by the Mormon church, by Jehovah's Witnesses, by moralistic teachers and preachers all over the South. And this is a gospel that sends men and women to hell. And what's truly concerning about this gospel is that they will use texts like the one we read this morning to support their beliefs. They will say, oh no, I can show you that we're justified by faith plus works. And it's right here in Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. Here's how they get away with that. When we read chapter 2, and we read verse 4, we see that the righteous is saved by his faith. He lives by his faith. Now this is one of the rare places where I think the ESV actually chooses the wrong word to represent the original Hebrew. This word faith is probably better translated faithfulness or integrity. Now, that's as far as I want to go into Hebrew and translation, because I already see some of you guys have that thousand-yard stare, like, okay, this is where I check out. This is why this is important. Because if you talk to someone who believes the false gospel of faith plus works, they'll say, look, if you render this the right way, if you translate this the right way, Habakkuk is saying faithfulness is what causes us to live. Obedience. This this means we're talking about actions and perseverance and works. That is what allows us to live. Now there's two very important reasons why we should reject this understanding of today's text. Two reasons. Number one, look at Habakkuk's own words. What is Habakkuk saying here? Who is going to live Verse 4, the righteous. The righteous shall live by his faithfulness. This is not about how to become righteous in God's sight. This is describing what the righteous person does. So the false gospel of faith plus work says, if you live faithfully, in the end, God will declare you righteous. He will justify you. That is exactly the inverse, the opposite of what Habakkuk is saying right here. Habakkuk is beginning with righteousness. He's saying the righteous person, the person who's already been counted righteous in God's sight, will live faithfully as a result. Now this isn't reading our doctrine back into the Old Testament. This concept wouldn't have been foreign or unknown to Habakkuk. You see, the prophet would have been intimately familiar with this through texts like Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, we read that Abraham believed in the Lord. He had faith in the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And as a result, what did Abraham do? Abraham was so faithful to God that he was willing to go and sacrifice his own son to God proving that his faith was genuine, vindicating his faith and his belief. This was the evidence of Abraham's faith, his faithfulness. That's exactly what Habakkuk is teaching here. And it is exactly the opposite of the false gospel of faith plus works. Now, the second reason that we can reject the false gospel of faith plus works from this text is its New Testament usage. You see, one of the beauties of about the New Testament using the Old Testament is we get an inspired interpretation. We get the Holy Spirit through men like Paul telling us how we should understand these words. That's exactly what we have here. This verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. The one we're going to focus on in particular today is in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. I'm going to read verse 16 and 17 for context. Paul writes... For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, this was where Martin Luther read Habakkuk's words and had his entire world flipped upside down. This is where he saw clearly that we are justified not by our works. We don't earn God's favor. We don't obey God and as a result receive righteousness from him. We are declared righteous by his grace and his love for his people. We don't earn it. It's a free gift and he gives it to us through faith. Now, there's two incredible dangers of this false gospel that I want you to be aware of as well. Faith plus works has consequences. The first is that it leads to pride, the very thing this text is so focused on. And that pride leads to hell. It leads to pride, and that pride leads to hell. We see this very clearly in the parable that Jesus teaches of the Pharisee and the tax collector that our sister Susanna read for us this morning. You see, we so often think of false gospels where salvation is based in works. We think of them as sort of a... We, have this, we imagine like a straw man version of that gospel where the person who believes that does nothing but works and gives no credit to God. He thinks, I am 100% earning my salvation. But that's not how faith plus works sneaks in or creeps into a church. It's far more subtle and far more dangerous than that. In that parable, we see the Pharisee at the temple. He's coming to the temple to thank God and to give God honor and praise for making Him righteous. You see, he realizes that he should be thanking God, but he thanks God for making Him righteous. He knows faith is important, but he's still ultimately trusting in his own righteousness, even though he's getting partial credit to God. Yeah, God, I'm going to give you credit. I'm going to give you thanks and lip service for making me this way so that I can trust in my own works and my own glory and exalt myself in my salvation. And what does that parable tell us? It tells us that Only one man went home justified, and it was not the Pharisee. See, when you give God credit for only part of your salvation, you're denying Him the glory He deserves for all of it. When you give yourself credit for part of your salvation, you're exalting yourself above God. The second reason that this gospel, this false gospel of faith plus works is so dangerous It's because if you expect to stand before God someday and be counted righteous on the basis of what you have done, you're either going to be proud like the Pharisee, or you're going to be miserable like Luther. Every single day, your conscience is going to cry out and say, Do as many good works as you want. You're still proud. You're still greedy. You're still covetous. In your heart, you're still a sinner. And you will never have the assurance of knowing that you are God's. That you are righteous in His sight. And that you're saved. You will be on the endless treadmill of trying to earn God's grace. And there is no peace that can come from that. When you focus on what you can do for God rather than what God has already done for you, it leads to nothing but heartache. Let's go back to this contrast again in verse 4 between the puffed up and the righteous. What we see here now that we've analyzed both of these groups is self-exaltation versus exalting God. It's an inward orientation focusing on your desires, your glory versus an outward and Godward orientation. So in summary, brothers and sisters, we are saved by faith and faith alone. We are not saved by faith plus our devotions. We are not saved by faith plus our prayer life. We are not saved by faith plus how well we give to the church. We are saved by nothing but Christ and our faith in Him. So we see that that is the result of faith. We know where the righteous will ultimately end up. But what about The proud. Where will they end up? What we see in the rest of this chapter is God is promising Habakkuk that he will judge Babylon. He knows how wicked and proud they are, he sees all of their sins, and he will not let them thrive past when he has appointed them to crumble under his wrath. Their success is only temporary. Now, God does this through a series of what's called woe oracles. That's why you heard me in reading this text over and over again saying, woe, that word is not something we use in our vocabulary very often. What it essentially means is it's an expression of emotion and of horror at what's coming. It would be like crying out, oh no, or can you believe this? That is the state of the heart of the prophet when he sees what will become of Babylon. Now, as we read through these woe oracles, there are two points of view that I want us to take when we we look at these texts. And I want them, they don't seem like they go together, but they do. I want you to hold on to both of them equally. Number one, I want you to take comfort as we read this text. Take comfort in knowing that God judges evil, God judges evil. God is going to judge the proud nation of Babylon and he's going to judge them perfectly because God's justice is perfect. God's justice is so perfect that despite whether or not Babylon would be judged in this world, in this life, ultimately, the scales of justice will be balanced. And that's true of every evil that's happened to you in your life as well everyone who may have wronged you, every injustice that's happened to you, every person who has done you wrong, every situation that you felt was unfair or unrighteous, whatever it may be, know that God's justice is perfect. And that sin will either be paid for on the cross of Christ or it will be paid for eternally in hell. This is why God's word says that the vengeance is the Lord's, it's not ours. We can leave it in his capable hands. The second thing I want us to consider as we read these woes is we need to look at ourselves. We need to take an attitude of humble self-examination. It's very easy to see God going after Babylon and go, yeah, get him, God, and forget that so many of the things we read about Babylon would equally apply to us. Where is our pride Where do we have greed in our lives? Where are we perhaps harboring violent thoughts? Where do we worship small g gods in our life? So let's look at these woe oracles now, beginning in verse 6. Here we see God focusing on Babylon's greed. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Verse 8. You have plundered many nations all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil game for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You see, here again we see that principle at work. The soil of pride, the roots of pride under that soil sprout up all kinds of sin. And greed is one of them. See, we see in the Babylonians a growing appetite for self-indulgence, for self-glory, for self-satisfaction. And that looks like expanding outward and shedding blood to take what's not theirs. This is, quite simply, it's, it's an addiction. I don't know if you've ever known an addict or spent much time around an addict. This is how addiction starts. It's always small at first. Maybe you get drunk once or twice a week. Maybe you just get high at a party every now and then. Maybe you only look at pornography once in a while when you're home alone and no one can catch you. But after a while, that's not enough. That buzz you get, that euphoria you feel from your drug or from your sin or from whatever it is, whatever you're abusing or twisting for your wicked desires, you need more of it. And suddenly you're getting drunk every night. Suddenly you're getting high at work on your breaks. Suddenly you're looking at pornography every chance you get. And the type you're looking at is even more and more depraved until that sin is consuming you. That's exactly what's happening to Babylon here. Like all addicts, God is saying that the remnant of the people that are left, there's so many of them that they are going to come and plunder you in the end. That is a warning to all of us. In in verse 12, we see a new woe. This is a woe to the violent. A woe to the violent. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Verse 17, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. You see, Babylon's pride turns into greed, and their insatiable greed has to be satisfied, and when you take something that's not yours, you become violent. This is the downward spiral of sin. You see Babylon making their neighbors drink their wrath as if from a cup to gaze at their nakedness. You see, when Babylon invaded a city, one of the things they would do when they were done killing and looting and plundering is they'd round up slaves. They'd strip them naked and they would march them all the way back to Babylon. That's what this verse is talking about. The blood that Babylon has shed in violence. Now you may look at this and think, I'm not a violent person. How can I reflect on my own sins with a text like this? Well, you don't need to be violent to let your pride and greed turn into something that harms others. You might be greedy in your heart and it might lead you to cheat or steal, to fudge the numbers in your taxes or at work. It might just lead you to harbor hatred in your heart for your neighbor. Maybe that neighbor has better clothes than you, has a nicer car or a bigger house. And in your jealousy for that, you wish you could get what they have. You wish you could take it. Which, as we know, is still sin, even if you don't act on those desires. You see, God is promising to repay Babylon for their violence. That's another warning that we need to consider when we assess our own hearts. Then finally, verse 19, we see a woe to the idolater. A woe to the idolater. We read, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlain with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. You see, human beings were created for worship. Every one of you was made to worship God. And when human beings reject God and don't worship Him, it doesn't mean we stop worshiping. We just worship something else. In our pride, we create something to worship that's in our own image or in the image of what we think God should be like. The Babylonians literally did this. They had a statue of gold that they created and put in their ziggurat in their main city, their capital city, where they worshiped their god, Marduk. That was their idol. Now, we may not have idols of gold or stone. We may not create small G gods that look like little deities that we put on our shelves at home. In our pride, we may think, well, we're better than the Babylonians. But we still have idols. If we're honest with ourselves, we just make them harder to spot. Ask yourself, what do you give your time and honor and praise to more than God? What is that thing in your life that receives more of your glory than God receives. If you know what that is, that's your idol. Maybe for you it's a hobby that you pour all your free time into. Maybe for you it's, it's your personality you're trying to develop on social media and present to the world. Maybe it's your job. Whatever it is, kill it. Destroy that idol before it destroys you. Now, just as Habakkuk's contrast between the proud and the righteous had a greater meaning, a meaning that referred to God's redemptive plan of how we would be saved through our faith in Christ, these woe oracles have a greater meaning. Yes, we see Babylon destroyed in history. If you look back, Babylon was crushed, and they were crushed by the people that they had oppressed. But the greater meaning of this text is that God will judge all of us. All of mankind, the proud, the greedy, the violent, the idolaters, all will stand before God and be judged, just as Babylon was. This is just a dim picture of the wrath that we will face if we are not in Christ when we stand before God. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, Listen carefully. God's judgment is coming. Babylon is at your doorstep. You may think you have time, but you don't. Your life will be over before you know it. And you will someday stand before God and you will be unable to claim ignorance or innocence of your sins before him. And so I implore you, Heed this morning's warning. Just as Habakkuk warned Judah, run from the wrath to come. I'm warning you right now to leave the city of destruction, to flee from God's wrath by trusting in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and place your faith and trust entirely in Him. That doesn't mean get your life together and start to act in a moral way and then become a Christian, then trust in Jesus. Just like we sang earlier this morning, the only fitness that He requires is your need of Him. Recognize your need of a Savior and run to Him. Now, if you are a Christian this morning, sitting here listening to this sermon, there are two things that I want you to do when you leave here. The first one is I want you to root out the pride in your life Sniff it out. Find it and destroy it. This is how we live faithfully as Habakkuk speaks in verse 4. Easy way to do this, begin and end every day in prayer, asking God to show you where your pride is in your life. Now, just as we don't have any power apart from the Holy Spirit to combat and destroy our sin... We don't have any power apart from God's Spirit to even recognize our sins. So if we ask God for His help to see and to expose our sins, you will find them. And you will be able to deal with them far easier when they're out in the open and they're in the light. Number two, I want you to encourage one another. Find someone in this congregation who you regularly speak with and encourage that person and encourage them specifically with the evidence of grace that you've seen in their life. Remember the very first point that I had in this sermon? Habakkuk is on his watchtower looking at the horizon for God to respond to him. As we pray for holiness in our lives, as we pray for humility as a church, for growth in faith and repentance, we should be looking at one another's lives. And when we see that flicker of evidence that someone's heart is being changed, We should zero in on that and encourage that brother or sister because that is one of the surest ways to put pride to death is through helping one another to see it and encouraging one another to run from it. Finally, don't be discouraged when you do see pride in your life. When you are faced with sins that you maybe didn't even know you had or when your sins suddenly get a new breath of life from Satan and overwhelm you remember Martin Luther was a man who lived as a monk and I guarantee had a life that was more holy and was more full of good works than anyone's life in this room and yet he knew as the Holy Spirit told him you are still a sinner and he wallowed in the misery of that until he learned to trust in Christ through faith so if you're struggling with a sin or you suddenly find yourself faced with a sin, similarly, remember that you are already declared righteous. Your sins are covered by Christ's righteousness. You've already fled the city. Babylon can't harm you. Christ is keeping you safe, and he will not let you go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it to pierce our hearts, that you would use it to strengthen our faith. And we would leave here encouraged and with a greater trust in you. Amen.
0: Please stand with us.